Dean Martin has not appeared at the Academy Awards for 13 years. The only way we got Dean here tonight was to put him in a tux while he was asleep and tell him he was going to a Ruth, Ruth Buzzy roast. <laughs> See, I, do, I make those mistakes occasionally for the translators who are doing this for the foreign uh, countries. But when Dean heard who his real co-presenter was, he woke up immediately. This matchup was made in heaven to present the award for best scoring, Dean Martin and Raquel Welch. Probably eight to five, only two of you people were looking at me. <laughs> yeah? Well, anyway, there's an old cliche that says the best musical score for a film is one that you don't even hear. The winner is Giorgio Moroda from Midnight Express. Thank you very much, Neil Bogart, Joyce Bogart, and uh, Peter Gruber for giving me the chance to start in this new beautiful field. This is my first score. Thank you very much to the producers. <laughs> to the Your first score? Yes. <laughs> Howdy, Russipeds and Ronapods. Been a long time since I rapped at you. This is your erstwhile host of this here podcast, Christian Huey. 2021 was a colossal year for Sparks, what with the release of both the Leos Carax-directed uh, Annette and the Edgar Wright documentary, The Sparks Brothers. Both have garnered tons of accolades and awards, which I won't even try to list here. You can Google all that easily enough. The band is on tour as we speak, although nowhere near my part of the world, sadly. The 21st Century Sparks Collection is still rolling out with remastered versions of all your favorite Sparks albums on vinyl and CD. For more info about this and other Sparks news, check out their official site at allsparks.com. Beyond that, the only item we might call news on the Sparks front is photographic evidence via social media that the brothers are, in fact, in the studio working on their 231st album or something. Uh, more details to come about that, I'm sure. I've put this episode off far long enough. We're finally ready to enter what I think of as Sparks Mark III, with the 1979 magnum opus, Number One in Heaven, subtitled When Giorgio Met Ron and Russ. This episode is a little bit different uh, because I'm the type of nerd who loves these things. I spend way too much time analyzing the instrument that makes this album so special, the Moog Modular 3P. After that, my fellow Sparks enthusiast, Monty Mallon, joins me for a discussion about the album with a focus on its creation and its side A. This one gets a little heady and the tech stuff might bore you, so fair warning there. Oh, hey, uh, can I share something personal with you? I got the chance to act in an independent movie earlier this year, and the subject of favorite films came up. My script supervisor, Rob's current favorite movie, Annette. Pretty cool, right? Okay, now it's time to beat the clock. 
look up Midnight Express on the popular review aggregator website Rotten Tomatoes, and you'll find this description under the words Critics' Consensus. Raw and unrelenting, Midnight Express is riveting in its realistic depiction of incarceration, mining pathos from the simple act of enduring hardship. Roger Ebert wrote that the movie, quote, creates spellbinding terror. And Charles Champlin of the Los Angeles Times opined that the film had, quote, a kind of wailing, arid authenticity and enormous power. Now, not every critic who reviewed Midnight Express in 1978 was quite so complimentary, but there's no doubting that the movie had a big impact on the U.S. box office, the movie industry, and society itself, embedding the squirm-inducing phrase Turkish prison into the English lexicon. It also helped to launch the careers of conspiracy-minded auteur Oliver Stone, who was the film's screenwriter, and the composer of the film soundtrack, one Giorgio Moroder. Moroder, of course, was far from unknown in 1978. He was a much-in-demand disco producer and the progenitor of so-called Italo disco, which exuberantly embraced a kind of techno-futurist aesthetic, eschewing traditional disco instrumentation such as guitars, bass, drums, horns, and strings, and going all-in on the still-new analog synthesizer. But after scoring the soundtrack to Midnight Express, promoted by the heart-racing, propulsive single Chase, and then winning an Academy Award for his efforts the following year, Marauder's career went into overdrive, and he suddenly found himself feeded not just by disco divas, but Hollywood producers. Marauder's dramatic, synth-heavy anthems would become ubiquitous throughout the next decade, working with the biggest names in music and in the movies. But Midnight Express was his first Academy Award performance. And speaking of, do you think Ron and Russell Mayle gave much thought to the near-synchronous timing of Giorgio's Oscar and the release of that particular song as part of its parent album? Did Giorgio? Inquiring Minds. Let's turn back the MIDI clock for a moment and strap in for a bit. We're riding off to school. If you're not interested in the mechanics of subtractive modular analog synthesis, but I mean, who couldn't be? Feel free to skip ahead, oh, I don't know, eight or nine minutes or so. We're driving the Wayback Machine to 1964, where a bright young guy in Queens, New York, was working toward a PhD in engineering physics at Cornell. He had also just engineered and built his very own instrument. It needed a power source to work, and it made sounds by converting a DC signal into an AC signal, which would then oscillate at a given frequency. When connected to an amplifier, this oscillated signal would produce a steady tone. Change the frequency of the oscillation, and you change the pitch. For the pure joy of it, Bob Moog, M-O-O-G, Moog, had invented the first transistor-based synthesizer. I emphasize the words transistor-based because the first Moog synthesizer wasn't actually the very first synthesizer. 
That would probably be the Elephantine RCA Mark II from 1957, which, like the primitive computers of the day, were as colossal as they were because they use an unwieldy tangle of vacuum tubes to relay and process information, and not the far smaller and efficient silicon transistors. But Moog's creation was a massive leap forward for other fundamental reasons, too. For one, he made his synth modular. Literally, he would connect separate modules together by way of insulated wires called cable patches, and each module would manipulate the incoming signal and thus its resulting sound in specific ways. More about modules in a moment. But the innovation that was particularly interesting to musicians, as opposed to, say, engineers, was that you could actually play the thing like an instrument. Whereas the giant RCA had to be programmed with paper punch cards, you could plug a keyboard into the Moog. This was huge. You were no longer dealing with a bellowing, squelching sort of ENIAC. This was an instrument, like an organ, kind of. A pipe organ, as you know, can make many, many different kinds of sounds. So can an analog synthesizer, although by vastly different means. This is where the modules come back into play. Moog built each module to do a different thing. Here's a common configuration of a modular system. There's a module that contains a VCO, or voltage-controlled oscillator. Oscillators make the sound happen in the first place. No oscillator, no sound. They apply a modulating signal to the incoming voltage, which produces a waveform. How high or low the pitch is from that waveform is controlled by your keyboard, which is helpfully also called a controller. Now, let's talk about waveforms. What are they? Well, the word refers to the form or shape that's produced when you graph out the oscillation of the incoming signal. It also refers to the fact that the signal comes in as a wave, the voltage of the signal cycles between a low point and a high point. And it does this in predictable ways. There are four fundamental waveforms. I'm not sure exactly why these four, I'm not there yet, but it has to do with math and the different harmonics produced when you manipulate the waveforms according to uh, those mathematical rules. Those four basic waveforms are the sine wave, the square wave, triangle wave, and sawtooth wave, or simply saw wave. Out of all these, the sine wave is the most basic, and unlike any other type of waveform, it only produces one frequency at a time. It's a pure tone, or as close as you can get to it. Every other type of waveform can be built with sine waves of different frequencies and amplitudes. It actually looks like a wave when you see it on a graph or oscilloscope. The square wave cycles between its lowest voltage and its highest, with no gradual increase or decrease. The square wave, as well as the triangle and the sawtooth, and in fact every other shape that are made up of more than just one single frequency, they contain additional frequencies, called harmonics. But your ears hear one main frequency or pitch. Here's a square wave. The triangle wave goes up until it hits the top and then instantly switches directions and heads toward the bottom. Once it hits the bottom, it instantly reverses and heads back to the top. 
The sawtooth wave signal starts at the bottom and works its way to the top. Once there, it immediately drops back to the bottom and starts all over again. In subtractive synthesis, which is what we're dealing with when we're talking about the vast majority of analog synths, the sawtooth is the most frequent starting out point. It's easier to subtract, to um, take away from a sawtooth wave, obviously, than a sine wave, which is already the most simplistic wave you can have. Finally, many oscillators, aside from producing the four waveforms you just heard, often also can produce different kinds of noise or static. Now, these aren't waveforms at all, just random signals. You can sculpt white noise sounds to make percussion sounds, like a hi-hat or a snare. Now, back to our modules. Your controller module sends its signal into your VCF, or voltage-controlled filter, or if you're short on time, just filter. This module has cool knobs and buttons for shaping the incoming sound by emphasizing, de-emphasizing, or cutting out entirely specific frequencies. This changes the sound's timbre, the overall palette of frequencies that are audible. Timbre is what makes, say, a trumpet sound different from a piano or a wasp fart. Then your filtered tone is fed into the VCA, or voltage-controlled amplifier. The amplifier does what you think it would do, and that's control the volume of the tone. But crucially, it can control the volume of the tone over time. Do you want the sound to fade in or out when you press a key? Do you want the note sustained or to be short and abrupt? Usually, your amplifier has an envelope generator, which is controlled by a few knobs or switches. The envelope controls those uh, iconic ADSR levels. ADSR, that's attack decay, sustain, and release. Now, attack. The attack levels control how quickly your signal occurs once you trigger it. Fast attack means a quick onset, while a slower attack does the opposite. Decay determines how long a signal will take to fade out once triggered. The greater your decay, the more present your signal will be until the point that it fades out. Sustain controls how much a note or signal will hold once it has been triggered. The control ties the attack and decay together and is often used to set the overall thickness or weight. Release lets you decide the total time span of your signal. Setting a quicker release time shortens the overall signal's length while increasing the release time will result in more extended sound. You might have a module that allows you to modulate your sound. This is done via low-frequency oscillators or LFOs. LFOs let you do cool stuff like add reverb, uh, tremolo, uh, vibrato, and, and other effects. After all that, you can even feed everything into a sequencer. This frees up your busy fingers by letting you play arpeggiated notes or some other pattern of notes of your choosing based on how you program it. Now, unless you're already familiar with analog synths or synthesis in general, your head may be spinning. I dissected this whole electronic corpse and laid out all of its entrails here on the table for you so you can better understand and appreciate just what Ron and Russell Mail were faced with, with learning, absorbing, and implementing when they were introduced by Giorgio Moroder to the behemoth that was the Moog Modular 3P. 
But first, here's a short list of artists who were able to get their hands on and their minds around various iterations of the Moog synth in those early days. You've got The Doors with Strange Days in 1967. The Monkees, Daily Nightly, one of my all-time favorites, 1967. The Birds, Space Odyssey, 1968. Simon and Garfunkel's Save the Life of My Child, 1968. Four songs on the Beatles' Abbey Road, 1969. And that was all just from the 60s. First built in 1969, the Moog Modular 3P was exactly the same as the 3C. That's the one that the Beatles used on Abbey Road. But it was designed to be packed up in crates and taken on the road. Now, I'm not sure how much it would have cost in 1979 or 1978, but the Moog company, uh, Bob himself, by the way, sadly passed away in 2005 from a brain tumor, reissued the system in 2018. They manufactured a grand total of 40 units, and right now each sells for $35,000 U.S. Although definitely not ENIAC-sized, when fully assembled, the 3P looks about 6 feet, that's 2 meters long, maybe 2 feet or so deep, and approximately 7 feet tall. Famously, Sparks opted out of taking number one in heaven on the road because they didn't think they could realistically tour with the 3P. Plus, there weren't a whole lot of those in existence, and this was Giorgio's. I'm sure he needed it. Here's the description, by the way, from Moog's website of the reissued 3P, which is meant to be identical to its original, okay? This is what you get when you shell out for one of these bad boys. 37 hand-stuffed, hand-soldered modules, custom-mounted and hand-wired, and three solid wood Tolex-wrapped cabinets. 10 discrete 901 series oscillators coveted for their organic sound, not found in the Model 15 System 35 or System 55. The 905 Spring Reverb Module. This expands the character of any sound into enchanting piano-like trails. Four CP3 mixers. These are tonally similar to the mixer found in the Model 15, not found in the Model 15 System 35 or System 55. The 9844 Channel Matrix Mixer. This is designed for parallel processing, complete with dedicated controls for bass and treble. Okay, you done with all this techno mumbo-jumbo yet? Well, if you skipped all that, here's where you should start back up now. Okay, quick bio on Giorgio Moroder. Born Giovanni Giorgio Moroder in Uktijai, if I'm pronouncing that right, that's U-R-T-I-J-E with an umlaut over it and an I, in South Tyrol, Kingdom of Italy on April 26, 1940. Moroder was born into a German-Italian family that also spoke the regional language of Ladin, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's L-A-D-I-N. It's a regional language, a romance language. Giorgio's father was a hotel concierge, and Giorgio was one of three brothers. He taught himself to play guitar at the age of 15 after becoming enamored with the music of rock and roll's original bad boy, Paul Anka. That's a joke, by the way. By 18, he was touring Europe as a professional musician. 
During the day, he would make his own recordings on his portable tape recorder. By 1963, he was releasing singles under his own name. In 1970, he scored a gold record with the song Looky Looky. Soon after, he moved to Munich, where he founded Musicland Studios and continued to release a string of singles, including the UK hit Son of My Father in 1971. It was one of his first singles to incorporate the Moog modular synthesizer, which he had obtained in 1969. Now, while the sound of any sort of synthesizer in a pop song was still pretty novel in the early 70s, Moroder had not yet dared to stray from the then contemporaneous use of the synth as little more than an aural novelty, a bit of flair, a dash of color to gussy up an otherwise traditionally arranged pop song. Giorgio wrote for and produced many other artists at Musicland, often teaming up with lyricist Pete Balot. Balot and Moroder soon developed an affinity toward the music of the burgeoning disco scene and discovered their most impactful and influential muse in the form of Donna Summer. Summer, a native of Boston, Massachusetts, had been in Munich touring with the German adaptation of the hit musical Hair in 1968 and opted to stick around, booking regular gigs as a model and backup singer. In 1974, while recording vocals for Three Dog Night in Musicland Studios, she caught the attention of Balot and Moroder, who signed her on that year as a solo artist. The trio released a steady stream of albums and singles, mostly meant to appeal to disco fans of the mid-70s. In late 1975, Love to Love You Baby, an epic, sprawling disco track, became a runaway hit on both sides of the Atlantic. Summer's primal moaning during the song's uh, climax garnered much controversy, particularly with American radio stations and the BBC as well. But few songs were able to capture the zeitgeist of the disco era's ultra-hedonism better, and after the single reached number two on the Billboard charts and number five in the UK charts, despite being banned by the BBC, it was clear that Donna Summer was a disco diva hit machine. But it was Summer's next project with Marauder and Balat that changed the trajectory of dance music in particular and pop music in general. 1977 saw the release of Summer's concept album, I Remember Yesterday, which sought to be a sort of musical travelogue through the decades of the 20th century pop music up to the present. The final track on the album was meant to predict the pop music of the future. That song was I Feel Love. And it was a revelation in the sense that it was recorded almost entirely using a Moog modular synthesizer, which included the relatively novel Moog 960 sequential controller. With the sequencer and an arpeggiator, Marauder could program patterns of staccato notes, which gave I Feel Love its iconic driving, sweeping bass line. Arguably, if there is a single identifiable Marauder sound, it, it's found in those chunky, skittering 16th notes that make every move up the scale and down feel like taking off in a rocket ship to Mars. Or in this case, maybe Venus. Marauder was aided in his efforts to record this sound of the future by the synth technician Robbie Waddell. Waddell helped Marauder navigate around the sequencer and showed him how to synchronize the different tracks with a click track, an innovation Marauder later called a, quote, revelation. 
I Feel Love was performed on sequencers onto a 16-track tape recorder. Each snippet of recording could be no longer than 20 to 30 seconds, as the Moog notoriously would fall out of tune after that length of time. The Moog's white noise generator was tweaked to provide a usable hi-hat sound, but Marauder was frustrated by his failed efforts to synthesize a good kick drum, and instead employed flesh-and-blood drummer Keith Forsey for the bulk of the rhythm parts. Unusually for a disco track of the era, Marauder composed the backing track and bass line before the melody. He altered the key at regular intervals and layered Summer's vocals. Each note of the bass line is doubled by a delay effect. The unmodified bass line plays through the left channel and a slightly delayed repetition through the right, creating a flickering strobe light effect. Those words, by the way, come from a Pitchfork article, Song from the Future, the story of Donna Summer and Giorgio Moroder's I Feel Love. Donna Summer, by the way, recorded her vocals in a single take. The effect of I Feel Love on the music world and arguably pop culture writ large was that of a neutron bomb. The rockists derided it as automated machine music, misled into thinking there was little to no human input involved in its creation. Of course, established electronic acts like Kraftwerk already knew that this was nonsense. Marauder himself pushed back, asserting, even if you use synthesizers and sequences and drum machines, you have to set them up to choose exactly what you are going to make them do. It is nonsense to say that we make all our music automatically, he would add. As often as not, it is at least ten times more difficult to get a good synthesizer sound than on an acoustic instrument. Progressive-minded artists like The Human League, Blondie, David Bowie, Brian Eno, Ultravox... Many of them were inspired by this wave of techno-futurism that moved not only the mind, but the body too. Enough to completely change musical direction, sometimes for a whole album, sometimes for an entire career. Marauder inspired himself with I Feel Love and followed up with the solo album Here to Eternity later in 1977, which took I Feel Love as its musical blueprint Keith Forsey on the skins included, and expanded on it over eight tracks, pushing the sound into different emotional spaces and tempos. Several months after that, he released the Oscar-winning soundtrack to Midnight Express. By early 1978, Giorgio Moroder was an icon in every sense of the word. It wasn't just the chunky, arpeggiated sound of his synthesized tunes, which brought the brutal precision of the more detached sounds of Kraftwerk to the cocaine-fueled disco dance floors that were iconic. He had his own visual iconography. The giant aviator-style sunglasses, the dark mop of coiled hair, and that great, wide, virile mustache, which screamed 70s from every conceivable perspective. In the late 70s, if you weren't one of the ones banking on punk primitivism to point the way forward, Giorgio was your guy. Ron and Russell Mayle sure came to think so.
Hello, this is Computer Girl from the song Computer Girl. Did you know you can make your own tryouts for the human race right in the comfort of your own home? It's true. You don't even need a synthesizer or a drum machine like Christian here, who is, after all, a mere human. Most of tryouts is built around an A note, or an A minor chord if you are feeling ambitious. The chorus to the song begins in C major, down a half step to B major, then an F major, back to A C major. Do you want the middle eight? Get your own computer girl. the future and the past we're the only way you're gonna last we're just pawns in a funny game tiny actors in the oldest play it's an angry sea we face gotta get the chance to join the race gotta make it gotta try gotta get the chance to live and die Tryouts for the human race from Burlington to Bond. Oh, we are a quarter billion strong. Tryouts for the human race from twilight time till dawn. We just wanna be someone, anyone. Tryouts for the human race from Burlington to Bond. Oh, we are a quarter billion strong. Tryouts for the human race from twilight time till dawn. We just wanna be someone So I, I wanted to ask you, Monty, what's what's your personal um experience with the album with, with this album when when it came out? Well, I mean let's let's just step back a second. Um, sure. Yeah, I mean it's an intimidatingly good album. <laughs> I mean it's you know, I think before even talking about my experience or your experience, it just has to be acknowledged what a landmark album this is in history. And I know we're going to yeah. talk about that today. Um, and I'm really looking forward to that conversation. My personal background with this album is that I believe it came out in uh, March of 1979. Yeah, yeah. And I was in, I was finishing up my uh, freshman year at college and I was in Boston. And in Boston, they had really cool radio. And Sparks was being played. And so not only was I, I had a record store that I went to where I bought it, but I was able to uh, hear beat the clock on the radio, which was, which did not happen in Pittsburgh. Um, right. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, so my experience with it was just, wow, this is something really special right from the very beginning. Now, did, did Sparks have any kind of um, purchase in Boston? Uh, uh, I, I don't personally know them to have any. Well, not particularly, but Boston just had a really great music scene. I mean, there were clubs all over the place and there was mm -hmm. all kinds of music on the radio. So it was just part of the scene. Sparks was played and I would go occasionally to a party and people were playing Beat the Clock, which was something that never, ever happened before in my life. So it was part of the scene. It wasn't like a big uh, dominant part of the scene or anything like that. But yeah, there was a lot more openness to what they had to bring for sure. 
you were a fan of Sparks long before this. Is that right? Yeah, I started way back with the kimono propaganda era. So uh, I would think that uh, they probably lost some fans along the way when they made this uh, adjustment. Um, and they acknowledged that. What made you keep following them uh, on this journey, which was a pretty radical departure? Okay, so you're like feeding me easy ones here. Yeah, um, I am. <laughs> but basically, I've I've told this story before that uh, you know I got into them or when I saw them on Don Kirshner's rock concert and Midnight Special, just like a ton of other people went out and got Propaganda and Kimono, and then I got the first two albums. And I'm a hard rocker. The music I listen to is generally uh, ACDC, Rolling Stones, Joan Jett, all that kind of stuff. It's a world away. Um, what? It's a world away. It's a world think. away, but Sparks was rocking really hard at that time. Those albums, Kimono and in, in, in uh, Propaganda, they rock hard. But there was always something that you heard in them that was special. You know, there's always that Ron and Russell element that everyone who listens to this show knows exactly what we're talking about. Sure. And, you know, they were always something special and none of my friends could stand them. But And they were like, why are you listening to this nonsense, <laughs> you know? Um, but I just, I was a true believer and an acolyte because there was something special about them. But the turning point was Indiscreet because that was the first album that came out new for me when I was a listener. And there was a record store I went to in Pittsburgh and they said, hey, guess what? You got a new Sparks album. And I went and picked it up. And this was nothing like the other four. Sure. And so that's where there's a decision point, right? It's like, okay, am I in this because is I like the way they rock their music and they're, you know, they're, it's fun mm -hmm. to listen to and I like that beat and all and all the rocking guitars? Or am I, or is there something more here? And you start to realize it's really about Ron and Russell and their vision, you know? And so you realize that if you really are into Ron and Russell, you're on their journey. You're, you're just passengers on their journey. I hate to pin and, you down. Yeah. I'm so sorry, but, but what what do you think that journey is about? Well, but, but let me just finish. This. I'm sorry, please. That's finish. okay. Let me just finish the story really quickly. So once that happened, it didn't matter what they did. It would, it made a matter of oh, this is really cool that they're doing this. So if they came out with this hard rock album that was okay, it was kind of like okay, now they're doing hard rock, and now they're doing like this soft Beach Boy stuff when the Beach Boys are still going strong. So I'm not really sure what this album's about. It's like okay. That one was a little harder to take for me, but what are they going to do next? And then all of a sudden they hit you with this. And that's the point of the story. They hit you with this. And it is just, this is something that goes beyond just trying to do Beach Boys kind of harmonies or trying to capture new wave ethos or something like that. This is something really special. And you're deeply into the journey now. So if you were just into it because you like that hard rocking glam sound of the first few albums, that's fine. You're probably lost with this one. But if you're really keyed into Ron and Russell, then it's a different experience altogether. And that's where I was. As a rock guy, what made you follow them to this particular leg of the journey? Because I was into Ron and Russell and I was into where they were going. And so, you know, it was, you know, also at that time, there was the Sparks newsletter that came out every couple of months. So I knew they were working with Giorgio Moroder. I knew they were thinking of something really different. I thought that was really cool because by then, you know, I, I had cassettes with uh, propaganda and in, in, in kimono in my house that I would keep by my bed at night 
back when I was still in high school, and they would just loop over and over and over. One side would be one album, one side would be the other. I just listened to them over mm. and over, and it wasn't – it was so transcendent of the music. It was, where are these guys coming from? And then they hit you with Indiscreet. And so, so three albums later, they're hitting you with this. And it's like, so, this is really worth exploring. There's something going on here. So it wasn't about the genre of music. It was something about what – uh, what these guys were bringing aesthetically or philosophically or musically. By this time or I was way beyond the genre of music. I was part yeah. of the Sparks Need guitars cabal at that time. I preferred uh-huh. them with guitars, but it was okay. It was okay. It was way beyond the style of music is what are they writing about? Where is Ron Mail coming from at the time? What is, you know, and uh, starting to really appreciate Russell for what he could do. Um, right. You know, it was it was about those two at this point. And, you know, look yeah. at it. I mean, they went through how many bands, just one after another, because the bands Indeed. were were ultimately disposable, which is hard, which is terrible to say. But in terms of their well, I vision, think that really solidified it, didn't it? This move really did solidify that, didn't it? That, there they, was were, no that they were a duo, that they were yeah, a duo. I, yeah. I mean, yeah. there was no effort whatsoever to even try to pretend to be a band at that point. Right. So of course, you know, uh, you know, if, if I'm just going to share my my uh, um, dis- discovery, of course, I I discovered Sparks way later, and um, you know, it, it, it was the YouTube era, uh, and I had already known and um, and listened to and loved, you know, a lot of the uh, synth pop duos of the '80s and early '90s and stuff like, you know, Pet Shop Boys and and uh, erasure and, and that sort of thing. And I saw what, when I first heard what they did with that album and saw them, I think it was more about seeing them, to be honest with you, hearing it was very, was important, but, but, but seeing them in those videos that I saw on YouTube, I, it, that was sort of the ur. that was, uh, I, I saw the beginning of that uh, ethos of that way of uh, approaching pop music that you could just be two guys, that you could be someone, you know, who handles the computers or the technology or whatever it was. And someone who does the, the singing. Uh, and so I saw that instead of a rock band trying to do disco. And I, and I, I get the impression that at that time in 78, 79, of course, there were a lot of rock bands that were doing disco that were going disco. But I, I don't feel like Sparks fell into that that mold, right? They, 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 were, they, they weren't quite there. And what's the difference? Okay. So just a couple things. You about uh the video yeah. as the visual aspect. I could not yeah. agree with you more. And even back then when I saw them, you asked about what, what made me so hooked on them. You know, uh, you know, here was this guy who did look like Hitler. He did look like Hitler sure. playing keyboards with this short hair. And I didn't know the whole history of Hitler and all that. And then there was this guy who was the lead singer who didn't really seem to look and act like a regular lead singer. He always seemed a little bit awkward, you know? Aloof. That, uh, something. Something. About, something something yeah. what didn't quite jive with what you expect from a lead singer. And it was like, what is going on here? And it's a source of endless fascination. It, or it was at that time, it was a source of absolutely endless fascination. Do you ever get? Uh, do you ever? I mean, I I, I get the feeling, and I'm, I and this is sort of an overarching thing, and I apologize that that sparks were uh, the reason that one of the reasons that they were able to get away with going disco 
was that Sparks were always playing a game or, or uh, that they, they saw it all as a game. Pop was a game. I mean, not that they didn't love pop music, right? But it was, it, it didn't matter what it was. They just wanted to do whatever, whatever pop was. That That's sense? a really interesting theory. I hadn't thought about it like that, but I, that, that wouldn't surprise me in the least if that's where they were coming no. from. Um, my feeling about it, going back to your earlier question, is that it's not really a disco album. There's one, maybe two songs yeah. that have strong disco elements, but the way I would characterize it as this is a Ron and Russell album taking on disco and dance music and doing it with the best in the business as opposed to a disco album featuring Ron and Russell. I mean, if you listen gotcha. to some of that Rod Stewart stuff, it's disco sure. with him singing it. This was totally in the, the personality of Rod Stewart, Maggie May and all that is just not there. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, do you think I'm sexy? What a silly thing for Rod Stewart of all people to be singing about, but right. with uh, Ron and Russell, they were singing about sparks topics, you know, I mean, you don't dance to dark topics like in my other voice or, you know, and this kind of stuff that's, you don't do it. Mm-hmm. But, so it's really a Sparks album that borrows from these other genres that were popular at the time. And I think that's one of the things that makes it so absolutely unique. Does that so make I sense want to, get, to you? Oh, oh absolutely. Yeah, to me, it's, it's yeah, it, it definitely does. Uh, so I wanted to get into the, the history of uh, what uh, led them up to making this album just for a minute. So, of course, before this album, they did Introducing Sparks. We know about that album. That's the, I guess you would call it the, the, the Ersatz Beach Boys album or something, right? No, that's or California. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Sure, sure. And, uh, and that did not uh, go very well, of course. It was, you know, they, they had a bunch of um, session players in there. Uh, they weren't happy with it. Uh, so uh, what happened, and uh, I'm just you know, reading from my, my notes here. October uh, 1977, they returned, Ron and Russell, to L.A. after a promotional tour for introducing Sparks. Now, at that point, and they realized that it didn't land well, they were still shopping around some leftovers uh, from that album. There were a couple of songs, Kidnap, Keep Me. If you're on YouTube, you may have heard them. And then they recorded six new songs, and they're now known in the internet world as the Arisa demos. And I'm sure you, you know about those. Uh, and those were songs like Biggest Party in the World, Get Laid, I Wish I Could Dance Like Black People Do. Probably not something that could come out today. After Dark, Breathe, and Trying Day. These songs, they were they shopped these around to a bunch of other labels. It wasn't just Arista. And everyone passed on all this. It kind of seemed for a moment like they just didn't really have very good ideas. Look, I, you know, for everything I'm saying think? about how much I love them. Oh, I'm sorry. We're having a little – you can cut this. You can edit this part out. There was a little delay in oh, the no. conversation. Yeah. So what I think is that – you know, as big a fan as I am, it doesn't mean that I just love everything they do without question. Uh, I'm not, I, I know that there's a big uh, following for introducing. I, it never has gelled with me even to this day. Um, yeah. But those demos are not their strongest demos. 
Kidnapped right. is, is, in my opinion, it's not a good song. I, I you know, yeah. and I listen to it and I say, well, this is why it never made an album. And I remember reading somewhere that one producer said, listened to it and said, okay, well, now play me your A-sides. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Who was that? I can't remember that now. But I think that, that, was, I think that was before this. I think that was probably yeah. um, a couple of years before. Uh, so, yeah. So they, they got nowhere with those songs. And I agree with you. They're, they're not great songs. And, in fact, Russell himself has said many times that he regrets that those uh, handful of songs have made their way to the Internet and have circulated so much because they have so many other songs besides those that they think are much better that never went anywhere. Um, so there's a little a mini story about John Hewlett. And uh, you know John Hewlett, who was their manager for uh, six or seven years up to that point. And uh, so uh, according to uh, his story, it was uh, he suggested that Sparks maybe go electronic. And he says that, or he said at the time, that he contacted Marauder's office. And uh, specifically, uh, John Hewlett at that time really was into craft work. And uh, specifically at that time, what was it, 1978, Man Machine. What do you think about that? What do you think about Mm -hmm. Kraftwerk's Man? Are you familiar with that aesthetic? I'm a little familiar with Kraftwerk. I'm a little familiar with Kraftwerk. I mean, that's that's the other side of the coin here is that all these other bands that are the electronic bands, almost none of them interest me. And so it's really comes right. down to Ron and Russell. So I, yes, I know they do a little me. bit. Yeah. I know they do. And that's, it's good to have this. Yeah. 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 Well, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Because for me, they just my sources. Right. Yeah. I got you. Well, there's, there's a, there's a bloodlessness, I suppose, maybe to uh, what Kraftwerk did and, and maybe even, you know, uh, Noi or No or however you say it. Uh, but that, that was his story. And uh, uh, so Ron and Russ at one point uh, said they had become fascinated by uh, a few disco songs around that time, such as Don't Leave right. Me This Way by Thelma Houston, which of course was not a Marauder produced thing. It was a very traditional for that time a disco song with traditional arrangements and traditional uh, instrumentation. Uh, but then I feel love hit by Donna Summer. Right. And of course I feel love uh, was uh, produced by Giorgio Moroder. And if I could, I would play that right now uh, because the instrumentation in that and, uh, and all the synths and the arpeggios could yeah, I mean you, you could really see we'll pause for a second and you can install it. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I mean, we all know I'll I feel love. Yeah. And and yeah, I've heard this story that particularly was the Marauder stuff. I hadn't heard the stuff about John Hewlett. I you know, and that's mm-hmm. certainly not how it's portrayed in the documentary. <laughs> but <clears throat> you know, if you right. listen to I Feel Love which I'm assuming we just did. Um, if you listen to I Feel Love. We did. It was great. Still great. <laughs> what you hear is very repetitive, right? It's it's straightforward. It's repetitive. The lyrics are I feel love, I feel love. 
that's that's there's really not much more to it. It's how it's produced right. and how Donna Summer is right. able to get into that production. And yes. that is a classic example. That's as good example of any of, of like a classic disco song. And what with number one in heaven, that's not what they did though. So I don't know if you want to get in that discussion now or if you want to continue well, with your narrative. I, I, the I, 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 right. So I suppose uh, the story that you may have heard in the uh, documentary uh, was that the, the males were speaking to a German interviewer in LA and they mentioned that they were already working with Maroder on a new album. And, uh, but of course that was a lie. And it turned out that that, uh, that interviewer knew Maroder uh, personally. And uh, she mentioned that he didn't say anything about working with Sparks, but despite being caught in that lie, uh, she put them in contact with Maroder and Maroder expressed interest uh, in working with Sparks, even though I think uh, he didn't know much about them beyond uh, their um, Komodo My House era. But he was interested in working with a band, with a band sensibility that might be different from the sort of uh, disco, you know, diva uh, sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, that's a great way to put it, the disco diva sort of thing. That's That started to change around 1979. I mean, there was some influx of some new sounds, but you're absolutely mm-hmm. right. That's a perfect characterization of the uh, Marauder sound at that time. I agree with you. What do you think about the Marauder sound? Because I go back and I listen, and I would play that now if I could, and I will. Blop. Um, there's <laughs> – I love – the instruments that he uses and, uh, and, you know, and I, I will get into this more, uh, but the, the main instrument that's used on number one in heaven is the, uh, the Moog, uh, modular three P. I know that's a very nerdy thing to sort of drop and get into, but, uh, it's, it, it's all, it's all synthetic. It's all uh, analog. Uh, you're receiving, um, uh, 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 electric, electric signals in, and then you're manipulating them, you know, to, uh, to hit, you know, certain frequencies and amplitudes. And then you've got a, uh, you know, an envelope around them. Uh, but it was, when I hear the kinds of music that was made from that kind of stuff to me, uh, and as, especially as, you know, someone who grew up on, um, techno pop, and dance music in the 80s and 90s, I see that as a major break. That's where I see that it's no longer disco. This is something different. Are you talking about Marauder in general, or are you talking about the Spark stuff? No, I'm talking about uh, uh, Marauder in general for uh, for a moment because he favored using uh, synthesizers. But... uh, there were already, of course, disco acts and disco producers before Marauder who were using traditional instrumentation, you know. And I suppose you could be cynical and say, well, gee, it was just much, you know, cheaper, I, I suppose, to use uh, synthesizers instead of, you know, getting a whole, you know, a bunch of, uh, you know, string players and whatever. But when I hear something like I Feel Love, that's something that's a much more, it's much different and it's sort of futuristic and uh, to me than something from the earlier disco period. And that's one of the things that makes me 
want to say that, uh, you know, this album is not strictly a disco album. It, there, there's a technological influence. There's a technological uh, um, um, slant to it. Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, Marauder is different. There's no question about it. But disco is expanding in a lot of different directions. You know, within – I'm not an expert on disco. I'm, I'm the last thing that you would call – I'm the last person you would call an expert on disco. But what I recall from the time is that it it, it was growing. It was, it was expanding in different directions. And so you got some, sure. some stuff like I Will Survive by Gloria Gaynor, which yeah. was – a really powerful song uh, and you could call it disco. Um, I have a personal, let, let me just say something else about that one. Do you ever think about that song and just think if Gladys Knight and the Pips did it and they did it in a whole different uh, arrangement, it would, they would knock it out of the park, right? Sure. But here they took those words and they put her in that background and it became such a powerful anthem. Yeah. And again, I'm not a disco guy and that's the last thing I'm going to ever pretend to be. But what I remember is that, there was stuff like Sister Sledge and there was stuff like that. And then the Beach Boys were getting into it. And then yeah. you had some of these groups like um, ZZ Top who were starting to get to take yep. their music and just add that kind of 120 beats per minute, that kind of sound to it. And all of a sudden giving it – everybody wanted – everybody to put out music that you could dance to. I know that's a later album. But, sure, sure. you know, and then you had the other strain with punk and new wave at the same time. So music was just starting to go and – very, very different directions at the time. And disco, to its credit, was open to growing and doing different things. So the fact that Sparks came around and did what they did isn't isn't totally a shocker. It's just the fact that they did it so well and they kept their own identity throughout the whole thing. They could have gone in a different way. They could have gone punk. They could have gone post-punk. I guess later you could say maybe they did. They could have gone new wave. Of course, later they did. Um, and they, but they chose disco, and they even used the word disco when you know referring to this album when it when it came out. So, you know, it it I'm I'm wondering why they found that that was the way they they wanted to go, as opposed yeah. to all those other directions. I you know it could you could be cynical about it and say yeah. that you know nothing else was working at the time, sure. so why not? Um, or you could say that they just found it, you know, take them on their, on their, on the, on the basis of their word with Russell and Ron saying, you know, this was really interesting music to us and we were interested in exploring it. This is or what yeah. Ron said this at that time in, in 1979 on the disco sound. We didn't have a list of other ideas. That was the only idea that we had. A lot of people thought it was a step backwards that we were entering the disco world. Our sensibility kept it so it was a funny mixture of elements. We were in that area and outside of it at the same time. The lyrics and Russell singing kept it separate from the wider world of this disco. So much of that music was done by legitimate singers. Donna was amazing. Georgia was uncomfortable with uh, Russell singing at the start. It was a combination of things that kept it from being as slick and processed as some of the other people who were working in that area at the same time. So he recognized, they recognized that they were entering the world of disco, but they saw this as, uh, 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 as um, an opportunity to do something different and meaningful is what I read from that. Yeah, I, I hadn't heard that quote before, but I don't think 
I, I don't think there's anything I could say or that you could say that would capture it better. I mean, that that's just perfect, and it's exactly right. They are great singers. It's really interesting about Russell's voice, though, and that Giorgio wasn't uh, comfortable with it at first because his voice is really – I think it probably hits career highs on this album. I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's funny because when, when you hear that, you're like, oh, that's a disco voice. I mean, this I mean, this guy's made for this kind of music. He does so well. He does, you know, of course, if if you've listened to Russell before, then, you know, he can go, you know, he's got like three octaves or whatever. So it's not, you know, uh, totally surprising. But but the but the drama, he really brings the drama there and he does such a wonderful job. I would take the take Academy Award performance. Yeah. His voice is crystal clear. It's driving the whole song and it's so powerful in, yeah. in such a unique way. Uh, I, and I, so I think it's one of the great assets of this album. I think there's a few things that make this album really special. And Russell's voice is probably right up there. Number one. I mean, it's, it, it carries it. It's so beautiful. Yeah. 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 Beautiful. Yeah. That's the word for it. It's just it a is. Beautiful, it is beautiful, powerful voice. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, in his own weird way, <laughs> he does come off like a disco diva. <laughs> you know, well, like you said, it's all like they like to play games. Exactly, indeed. Yeah. So, uh, uh, Giorgio Moroder, uh, I may get into this at, at a later episode, but uh, just to give a little bit of uh, background on Giorgio Moroder, uh, because he was so instrumental in more ways than one in making this album. He was born twenty six April nineteen forty, and uh, uh, Ert. Ertigel Ladin. At that time, uh, Italy was still the kingdom of Italy. So he was born to uh, German and uh, Italian uh, uh, parents. And he started to play guitar at the age of 15, inspired of all people by Paul Enka. And uh, he started at a very young age um, uh, playing guitar and uh, um, in, in various uh, places uh, locally. And then he founded Musicland Studios in 1972 in Munich. Now, he actually had a few hits around that time, such as uh, Son of My Father, which I'm going to play, and you'll hear in a moment. But he didn't ever really get a hit until he discovered disco and found in love with disco, and uh, specifically with Donna Summers. And, of course, we mentioned that a little bit earlier. Uh, that would be uh, I Feel Love, but he did a few songs uh, with her uh, as well. And I've got a link to a whole article about how he made that uh, that record, which I, I recommend people listen to because it because a lot of it has to do with the instrumentation and how he made the Moog uh, 3P make that album, which in, number one in heaven wouldn't be the same if it weren't for that. But besides that, um, what do we have here? Let's see here. Uh, number one in heaven was, uh, so they recorded that thing in the spring of 1978, as it was. Uh, some of it was in uh, L.A. and some of it uh, was in uh, uh, Munich. There were only two songs that... Uh, that Giorgio was uh, happy with. Uh, Is that right? That they already had. Yep, only two, and uh, those two were um, a "Beat the Clock" and Academy Award performance. 
the rest of them, he just like, he was not happy with at all. And so the uh, remainder of the album, he co-wrote with uh, Ron and Russ. Yeah, there's only there's only two songs where he is not listed as one of the co-writers. And uh, mm-hmm. one of them is Academy Award performance. And I think the other is Beat the Clock. Yeah. So that would be totally consistent with what you just said. That's very interesting. Yeah, there's a uh, a line here from Ron. He said, anytime we were stuck, he would say, boys, let me go away for 15 minutes. And he'd go over to an acoustic piano, and 15 minutes later, he'd come up with something. Even the number one song in heaven just took him 15 minutes minutes on the piano. So that's pretty interesting. If you think <laughs> about the fact that that's one of their greatest songs ever, in my opinion, how much of that was Marauder? I can't that I can't believe that that was quite that that sounds to me like an overstatement to be Maybe. honest with you yeah. because the arrangement that's something I'm looking forward to talking to the arrangement on that is so quirky it and is it's really so divided into two separate songs right and the the songs are so different in how they are produced and the sound that they create yeah. that that's that's Ron Mail. Yeah, I, I think I said something to you like it was sort of something like a, a, a disco version of a day in the life, you know, because you, you've got the, the it very it, it there. It's a two part song. Um, but the, with the second part, you know, really just uh, 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 take it completely different uh, trajectory. It's a, it's a rock song in the, the second part. It, yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah. So we can we can talk about that, but yeah, I mean, for sure. yeah, I mean that yeah that that song is uh, is really quite amazing. Uh, the first part really is one of the two or three places on the entire album where I think there's a very straightforward disco beat, and then it just kind of fades away and goes away. Yeah, and then you're left with it's almost a 100 percent complete fade in the yeah. middle of a song, which is yeah. I've never, I can't I don't know other yeah. songs that do that. And then it hits you with that drum beat and it goes into the whole second. Yeah. Right. And that's how they play it live. They begin with the drum beat. But so, the, yeah, um, we're going. No, I was just saying it, it's a, it's an amazing composition and it, it challenges you so much because if you're there to dance, you're dancing away, maybe at the first part a little bit, you know, kind of just gently having a good dance. Then all of a sudden it hits you with this completely other beat. And then you're head banging. Then your head, you're basically head banging almost. Yeah. 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 No, I completely agree with you there. So that brings me to Keith Forsey. Keith Forsey. Let's talk about Keith Forsey. Keith Forsey, one of the only people I wasn't able to to, uh, interview when I did my interview with all the drummers on Sparks albums. He just never got back to me. And uh, maybe maybe someday I'll try again. Um, (laughs) But. Mm -hmm. But uh, I would love to have talked to him because I think my the way I hear it and my understanding is that he was drumming. It was basically an, a live drummer. He was playing the drums. Yeah. And I think that even by then in disco, there was a reliance and correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't even by then there was a, a reliance on the electronic percussion and the electronic backing. We can get into that in a little bit, but the, the first electronic drum called the syndrome uh, was um, uh, came out in 19 late 1976. And they did have a little bit of that in this album, but Ron and Russ, as you know, were insistent on having a live drummer 
to, you know, really, you know, inject some blood into this. Yeah. And I think that really reflects some of the things that they contributed because they knew the value of having a live drummer, right. even if this wasn't a band per se, there was none, it wasn't, you know, th- this wasn't just uh, electronics replacing guitars. This was a whole new sound, but they still understood the value of having that live drums, which detracts from what we generally consider to be the straight disco sound, which is just the, the drums are so uh, repetitive and, and on, on, you know, and they don't change, yep. but there's always this little, you know, with a live drummer, it, there's always a little bit going you're on. You're so, Oh my gosh, you're so right about that. And I am not a drummer and I know next to nothing about drums. But I I hear the life that Keith uh, Keith Forzy brings into this, um, and I hear the difference when I listen to other things uh, that Giorgio Moroder uh, uh, Moroder has done and other people where they didn't implement him, and he did often he did usually he did often use Keith, but often he didn't, and when he didn't, you could you could hear the difference. Um, there was some some life sort of missing from that. Um, uh, besides that, of course, I mentioned the syndrome. Uh, there were a few uh, background singers uh, on that. There are uh, a few songs. background singers on this album. Yeah, which yeah. I hadn't I hadn't remembered, I hadn't realized, or I hadn't remembered since I started, you know, listening to it and reading all the credits, which I hadn't done in a very long time. I don't know who they are though. Chris Bennett, Jack I Marino, got the names, yeah. Bennett. Yeah. yeah, same here. I got the names, but I haven't been able to, you know, reach those guys. So, how about the the start to this album, tryouts for the human race? What's your take? And by the well, way, I, I, well, I want to. I'm, I'm sorry to do this, but yeah. uh, but you 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 got this album fresh, right? Yep. All three copies. Yeah. Yeah. What do you mean by all three copies? I have multiple copies of all this stuff. I have, okay. I have like a white, you know, uh, electro pressing from, you know, original pressing. I have the actual album. I, I don't know. I would just go to record stores and I would just buy the, buy it over and over and over. Cause apparently, you know, they signed with, with, with Virgin records and Richard Branson around this time. And Richard Branson was all about, let's do some new crazy stuff. And, uh, he was, you know, he was happy to, to sign these guys on. Uh, but when you first, as a Sparks fan at that time, uh, put on the album and you hear the first, well, you know, it's a uh, funny that, thing. Uh, it's just a funny little footnote. There is that yeah. I always started it with beat the clock. Cause I thought, Oh, that's a perfect song to start the album with. That must be side one. And I never really, it oh. was such a logical assumption to me that I never actually checked. So for years and years and years, I listened to it from Beat the Clock with number one song in heaven being the big ending. I listened to it the backwards, but okay. But Beat the Clock is is the first on side B, right? But that's how I listened okay. to it. That to me sounded like uh, the starter for the album. Okay, that sounds like a great way to start an album. Yeah, right? it does. Yeah, and it makes sense. It with yeah. Number one in heaven, this magnificent opus. Yeah, what a great way to end the album. So it took me years to get my head on straight on that. But uh, as far as tryouts are for the human race, I, I should say one other thing. I'm a complete fanboy on this album. Yeah. I don't have much to criticize. Uh, sure. You know, um, that won't be the case with some others. But with we'll this get one, to that. Yeah. Yeah. But with this one, I mean, it's a brilliant song. And, and who writes about this stuff? And, uh, you know, I remember the video again where. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Who does indeed. write about semen 
Who, yeah, and I, like, I remember and the video, the, they and, tried to make it about turning into monsters, I think. Uh, and, yeah, yeah, they yeah, did. It, yeah, it, they it turned into work. like werewolves, I believe. Yeah, it, in the it didn't work. Yeah. It didn't work. But the, but yeah, look the, cool. the, the, the lyrics are brilliant. The music is brilliant. You know, uh, you know, it's, you know, and then it, those, that great drum fill at the end, toward the end. Tryouts for the season. Oh, my God. That's why you need Keith Forsey. Yeah. And I would yeah. say this is one of the two or three places that it does start out with a very traditional disco beat. Little, I'm defining little, that little, as little, kind little, of like little. the kind of the oscillating hi-hat, you know, shh, shh, mm-hmm. shh. and then the strong four on the floor where all four beats are yes. emphasized with the bass. One mm-hmm. or however you do it electronically. One, two, three, four, boom, like that. And this is one of the few songs where you really hear that, but you only hear it for the first Verse, for the for the verses, when it comes to the chorus, it switches again to more of a traditional drum. Still play it on electronic, you know. However, it is the the sound right for the album. So, uh, uh, I'm sorry, say that again. Uh, play, play it on uh, electronics. Well, I don't know that exactly wasn't... how he's playing the drums. I, oh, mean, gotcha. I don't know if it's a kit okay. or right. or however. Okay. Or but I'm still I mean, trying to piece that apart. Yeah, yeah, but but what I'm saying is that you hear that traditional drums, you know, disco sound at the beginning, yep. but then it gives way to regular drums, and then it kind of vacillates between you know between the two of them for the song, which is a really neat touch. I read but, an in- yeah, go ahead, please. No, I read an interesting thing from both Ron and Russ that said that um, the uh, the Moog modular three uh, P just the way it worked uh, generally when when it would output. Um, a tone, it, it it the default was to come out in in um, in sixteenths, so it was very easy to arpeggiate. Mm-hmm. You would, so you, it was easy to hear, which is what you get at the beginning of Triads of the Human Race, and that's one of the things that I really love about the album is is the arpeggiated uh, synth sounds there. And yeah. I think that for anyone listening to that for the first time, we would be like, wow, what is this stuff? Yeah. And that's carried throughout, throughout the whole album. You get that. Yes. Yeah, I try to piece it together. <laughs> the, uh, um, compositionally, the uh, tryouts for the human race, I can talk about later, but it's mostly an a minor for anyone who's curious there. Okay, I know some listeners don't like when I uh, read out the lyrics to a song that we're discussing, but I feel obligated to do it because it well it helps me remember the lyrics. So this is Tryouts for the Human Race. We're just a gleam in lovers' eyes, steam on sweaty bodies in the night. One of us might make it through, the rest will disappear like dew. Pressure building, getting hot, give it, give it, give it all you got. When that love explosion comes, my oh my, we want to be someone. Tryouts for the human race from Burlington to Bonn, are we are a quarter billion strong. Tryouts for the human race from twilight time till dawn, we just want to be someone. We're the future and the past, we're the only way you're gonna last. We're just pawns in a funny game, tiny actors in the oldest play. It's an angry sea we face just to get the chance to join the race. Gotta make it, gotta try, gotta get the chance to live and die. We must, we must, we must, we must leave from here. Gotta make our play, gotta get away, gotta make our play. Let us out of here, let us out of here, let us out of here. We just want to feel the sun and be your little daughter or your son. 
We're just words that lovers use, words that light that automatic fuse. When that love explosion comes, my oh my, we want to be someone. Tryouts for the human race from Burlington to Bonn. Ah, we are a quarter billion strong. Tryouts for the human race from twilight time till dawn. We just want to be someone. Anyone.
there was definitely, I know, a lot of borrowing, you know, from parallel keys and whatnot. Uh, but he, he seemed to kind of stick to what uh, was going on in disco music a little bit more. I mean, there, there were some surprises for sure, but nothing like what you're going to hear on Indiscreet. No, no, he was sticking to the format, uh, to, to the to the disco and dance format. But where I guess I, I think you'll probably agree with me is that you the complex arrangements of some of these songs make them very unique for this genre. Right, exactly. We, yeah. I think we did agree on that. Right. Um, because although, it, right, no one who is doing disco or whatever you wanted to call the dance music of the time uh, that used synthesizers, no one was taking the sorts of chances uh, melodically that, that Ron was doing at that time. Certainly not lyrically. No, no way in hell. No, certainly not lyrically, but also just all the breaks in the songs and the different parts and things, you you know, you just didn't hear that. And even some of the bands that like the Bee Gees, you know, who really took disco, those songs do not have these kind of complex arrangements. So they just don't. Yeah. Okay. So I I wanted to talk about that for just a moment because and I kind of touched on it earlier. But at the, at this moment in 78, 79, whatever, you had a lot of legacy rock acts who were making, for lack of a better word, disco music, you know, like Rod Stewart we kind of talked about that a little bit. And even Pete Floyd in 19, late 1979 and, and whatever. Well, the Stones um, did it with Miss You. Exactly. Um, Miss You. Right? Blondie right. did it. Blondie, Blondie, did Blondie it. Yeah. right. Yeah. I, I think I, I'm going to give Blondie a pass because I think they were also playing uh, with the uh, the format and just kind of having fun with it, uh, absolutely. But but, uh, but yeah, so you know that w- so that was the kind of thing that would definitely. Uh, uh, well, I mentioned this before, but rock fans, you know, would uh, look at you know with uh, narrowed eyes, and and again, it's the Sparks was able to to get away with it because they were not loyal to any sort of aesthetic, you know. Yeah. But there is an anal- anal- there is an, an analogy to Miss You because that's yeah. a really good song that's almost like a very straightforward kind of bluesy number with a little harp in it even. Sure. You know, so, you know, there were some bands that kept true to who they were while at the same time incorporating dance elements or right. even disco elements, like you said, Blondie kind of having fun with it. And then there were some bands that just said, this is what we're going to do. And exactly. I, think that, I think that's what it is. Yeah. And so when yeah. you listen to the Bee Gees, it was like, okay, here's what we're going to do now. We're going to do Saturday Night, <laughs> Saturday Night Fever. We're going to do the soundtrack for that. And, right. You know, right. That's what they became. And other bands did that too. But not all of them, you know, yeah. All right. You get the point. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Academy Award Performance. The uh, second song on the album. Uh, one of the uh, two that made the cut in uh, Marauder's Eyes. What, yeah. what do you make of that? Well, it's funny. It's funny that those are the two that made the cut because when I hear that and Beat the Clock, I mean, I hear them as almost something I would expect to hear on a very traditional Sparks album. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, here's where you really have that ex- another accelerated drum beat pushing it. Russell... Uh, you know, we were talking about the contribution, his contribution to this album. The notes that I wrote down were clarity, tone, and range. It's just okay. 
so, so powerful that he can do as much as he does. Um, you know, and the, the one and three beats are, are, uh, relatively submerged almost. And the hi-hats are relatively submerged, which I found very interesting. Hmm. Um, you know, more than what I heard on some of the other songs. And it seemed to me that it, there's, there's this tension in it with the, you know, the electronic music, the da, 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 and then that's a brilliant fill, at least from my perspective. Mm-hmm. You know? And then at the end, it's just straight drums. You know, it's just rocking out. It's just rocking right. out in, in this new way. So, you know, it, it, and then the other thing is just the lyrics. Yeah. The lyrics on this song are just, just out of this world. They're, they're just out of this world. And how does this guy come up with this stuff? Okay. I'm reading the lyrics to Academy Award performance. Play the shark. Play the bride, Joan of Arc, Mrs. Hyde. You're a girl with a thousand faces to choose from. Do one. Do the saint. Do the waif. Do the child. That was great. Great performance. Only come with some inspiration. Oh, what a great performance. What a convincing performance. An Academy Award performance. Well produced. Clever lines. Well rehearsed. Well defined. There's a gold mine in what you do, but of course you know that. That's not bad, nor is that. Very good. So is that. On behalf of the guys you've known, here's your golden trophy. Oh, what a brilliant performance. What a convincing performance. An Academy Award performance. Play the scene naturel. Drop the lights. Drop the towel. No director can tell you what you should do. You'll do it. What panache. Oh, what style. Pack the house. Pack the aisles. Everyone's in the dark when you're in the room. Those rumors. Oh, what a great performance. What a convincing performance. An Academy Award performance. Oh, what a great performance. What a convincing performance. An Academy Award performance.
No doubt. Uh, so, of course, you know, so the first song that we uh, that we looked at, uh, uh, Tries for the Human Race, we know it's all about uh, sperm, right? It that's, is. Pretty, that's pretty easy <laughs> to figure out. Oh, and by the way, I don't know if I said this before, but um, um, as a younger person, when I first heard that, my immediate thought went to uh, the Woody Allen movie, Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Sex. <laughs> was under- Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, yes, of course. Yeah. Last scene. Yes. Yes, of course. Like all the sperm. Yeah, dude. It's like, what if we wind up on the ceiling? He's masturbating. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I I could not help but think about that. And I could not help but think if maybe, you know, if, 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 you know, Ron or Russell had seen that. Um, But what a great example. And so much of this uh, album has that of the mixing of the sacred and the profane. Mm-hmm. That was a great example of that. Uh, and of course, the apotheosis of that is going to be, you know, the, uh, the, the, the last song on the album, which we'll get to it um, eventually. Uh, but so Paul Barrett, uh, who is, uh, you might know him. He's on um, some of the, uh, the Sparks boards on social media. Uh, he, he made a good point about this album in general and about this um, uh, song specifically. Uh, Academy Award performance uh, that it was um, not only about a famous Hollywood actress, uh, you know, amidst all the glitz and glamour of the, you know, whatever, but also about uh, Sparks themselves being actors, playing the part of disco mavens and showing an awareness of some sort of carpetbagger status and getting some laughs out of that. I love Paul. I, I love his stuff. I really admire uh-huh. him. I I can't say I 100% always agree with him. I don't know how he thinks that Sparks really write about one topic, which is sure. themselves over all these albums. But I have to it admire... connected with me. What's that? It, yeah, I, no, I, it connected I, with I, me. I, I couldn't admire him more for no. developing this theory and, and seeing it through to really deep ends. He he really has developed this theory. Um, and it could be true. I don't know. It, I don't know if it's yeah, true or not. Maybe so. I give Paul a lot of credit. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good one. Okay. Uh, great song. Love it. Maybe I'll do some more stuff uh, when I edit this later about picking this, uh, uh, this uh, song apart. Um, Lyrically, it seems fairly straightforward. Maybe it has that uh, double entendre, maybe not. Uh, the The last song on side A is uh, La Dolce Vita, which, by the way, before before we get into that, uh, uh, Monty, I, I wanted to ask you, and uh, forgive my ignorance, I, I haven't seen the movie, uh, which I think is Fellini. Yeah. Do you know anything about the Fellini movie? I saw it years ago in, in Pittsburgh at the Pittsburgh Playhouse. There was a there were for many years they would show movies and I happened to see that. And I, I think it was after this song, and it's a good movie. Yeah. It's worth seeing. Absolutely. Does that have anything to do with this? I, I guess in a very abstract okay, way. Okay, abstract way. Okay. Well yeah. maybe they're just you know, maybe <laughs> they just like Fellini. Uh so I think la- they do, yes. La- La Dolce Vita. This is one of those songs where I feel like uh, Marauder probably had a heavy hand. It, it feels like um, uh, it has a heavier, uh, more traditional uh, sort of disco influence musically. Musically, I picked it apart, and it's fairly simple. Uh, 
you know, there's in an opening, you go D minor, G to A minor. And then the whole thing after that is basically an A minor. Um, and, uh, but uh, lyrically it's, uh, it, it's, well, what is it about? It's about, uh, gigolos, right? As, as what I get from it. That would be a one. Yeah. That would be a good summary. Okay. There you go. Uh, sort of picking apart the seedy side of the, the disco slash nightlife culture, these sleazy consumerist, uh, sex as commerce, uh, end of things. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's about right. I mean, you know, it's the lyrics are pretty straightforward. I tend mm-hmm. to listen to the lyrics and hear them just in terms of what they're saying. I, you know, I, I can only, there's, I can't, I, I'm not very good at looking for all the hidden meanings and everything. Sure. 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 So I hear it. That's how I hear it. These are the lyrics for La Dolce Vita. You're the only bank that's open all night, La Dolce Vita. Now that's clear, can you give me a light, La Dolce Vita? Now that that's clear, when do we eat, La Dolce Vita? Now that that's clear, can I have another plate of your La Dolce Vita? Gold diggers arise. Gold diggers are hungry guys. Gold diggers are we. Step up, follow me. Mirror, mirror, guys, there's lira in her eyes. La Dolce Vita. Looking real bored is what you pay me for. La Dolce Vita. Looking real bored is hard as scrubbing floors. La Dolce Vita. I'm overpaid, but still I'll ask for more. La Dolce Vita. Baby, after all, you've got to help the poor. La Dolce Vita. Mirror, mirror, guys, there's lira in her eyes. La Dolce Vita. I catch a cold just by looking in your eyes, La Dolce Vita. That's just a hazard in work of this kind, La Dolce Vita. Baby, you're looking younger every day, La Dolce Vita. I really mean it. It ain't just the pay, La Dolce Vita. And the chorus again. Mirror, mirror, guys, there's lira in her eyes, La Dolce Vita. Life isn't much, but there's nothing else to do, La Dolce Vita.
so, uh, and, and after and after reading Paul Barrett, I, I, I couldn't help but uh, think along his terms uh, that it was it could also be a, a nod to Georgia Moroder's uh, brand of his uh, a tallow disco, which is what they called it at the time, and um, and uh, and just a nod uh, to that uh, um, that that sort of. Uh, glamorous, uh, glamorous seediness that that whole um, that whole thing uh, sort of encompassed. Well, why, why would Ron and Russell spend their entire career writing about themselves and their personal experience? Well, that's a great time? question. But you know what? But also, whenever I write songs, I put a little bit of myself in there, a little bit. Sometimes sure, too. sure. So you know, it's it, it's, sure. it's 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 yes and. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, maybe Paul should be here and we could let him defend himself. I, I think so. I love well, Paul. I love his writing, and I really I invited him it. too. And I think I think we'll we'll get him. Okay, because I I got nothing but admiration for. Him. I just don't get it, yeah. you know. Um, so, but I'll tell you a couple personal. I, I love your descriptions of the of the songs. By the way, that's one of the things I most enjoy. So I'm I'm looking forward to hearing what everything that you have to add. To, sure. to our discussion. Um, I'll just add a couple personal things to it. Uh, this is, I, I once made a list of my top 150 spark songs and I got down to the okay. last top 10. And when I, I published it on my old blog and I said that these are not in order because there's just no way I can get beyond top 10. And this was one of them. And this is still one of them for me. I, I think this is an absolutely brilliant song and the way it holds together. Wait, which play, one? Uh, La Dolce Vita. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. That, that's yeah. in your top 10? I would I would put it as one of my top 10. Really? Maybe now. That was a while ago. Maybe top 15 or 20, but it's it's right up there. Yeah. Okay. And it has a personal resonance to me. I mean, you know, not that I'm a gigolo or I've had any career in that, <laughs> but I mean, it's it's just such a- If only. It tells, it tells the story so well. Yeah. And- you know, and the music is all good. It even has that little tribute to the who in the middle of it for some reason that I've never quite understood. But then it what, comes back. What, what, you know, what's the, little, the tribute to the who? A little music break with like sounds like a little bit like won't get fooled again. Do, 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 oh, do, won't do, get fooled. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I'm not saying it's a copy of it. And say it's like a little, hey, you know, throw right. it in. Okay. But then that last line, I was going through a, a very rough time at Boston University. I was very unhappy there. And then that last line, life isn't much, but there's nothing else to do. What a way to end the song. It's and a great remember, fucking I was listening line. to the album backwards. So in my mind, this was how they ended the album. And it was it was like, wow, that that is just a powerful little Life's not little, much, but there's nothing else to do. Life isn't much, but there's nothing else to do. It's a little throwaway line, but it's such a good one. And then I was walking to my dorm one day at BU and I was going under like a little overpass and somebody there's graffiti on one side of it. And somebody had written life isn't much, but there's nothing else to do. No. Are you kidding me? And it just, it just, I just said to myself, there's someone out there who gets it. I didn't need to know who that was. I just knew there was someone else out there that got it. And I was like, was, that's cool. That's wait, cool. You saw that line. Yeah. That someone had written. It was a graffiti on the, on the wall of this overpass. They just written life isn't much, but there's nothing else to do. I, I wonder if that's from the Fellini movie. I, I don't know. I don't remember. It was a long time ago that I <laughs> not saw. That, not that I want to take that away from the, the males, yeah. um, but yeah. but well, th- that that is a fan. 
God, what a fantastic line. What a fantastic line. It really and is. just seeing it there was like, wow, somebody else gets it. That's cool. Yeah, definitely. So this song means a lot to me personally. Well, that Especially might. If, if, you, if you think it's a great closer to an album, it makes it even better. Yeah, that's interesting that you that you have been listening to the album sort of in reverse in a way, or at least side B to side A. For years. Yeah. Okay. There you go. It, 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 yeah, kind of makes sense. But you think of it as just kind of a good song, it sounds like. No. Uh, well, you put me on the spot here. Uh, it's not just, uh, not just a, a good song. I mean, well, you know, of course, I, I, I see what he was going for with it, and it sounds really great. I, yeah. I, I, ha- I haven't had the pleasure of having the um, emotional... Uh, connection that that you have uh, with it uh but uh just like anything else on the album i'm sucked in and i appreciate the aesthetic and a lot of the aesthetic is gosh the whole album it's both a celebration of life and also a realization of um, how banal it can be at the same time, and that that song in particular, I really do uh, get that from. But but really, the whole album. That that know, is a, a great point. That is a great yeah. way to capture it. Maybe and, Paul was on to something. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, maybe yeah. so. Uh, well, hey man, so th- this is. This is about all I've got for now because I want to save so much more for part two okay. uh, of talking about this album and talking about uh, uh, Side B. And we've gone over over an hour. Uh, and and I, I want to talk about um, how Ron and Russ um, promoted this album once it came out and talk more about their videos and talk more about how it was received and, and all that sort of stuff. So I just want to give us more stuff for, for next time. But for this, I'm so happy that you were able to join me and that we were able to make it work. That we that took a, a considerable amount of time. Yeah, but sure now did. we have something to build on. Yes, we do. All right. Hopefully, hopefully it'll, it'll be easier next time, huh? No, oh, thank you. This was great. This was really yeah, fun. Well, and, we're uh, going to do a lot more of it. Let's do it. All right, man. Well, you have a good night. All right. You too. Talk to you soon. Hey everyone, that's the episode. Uh, I want to thank Monty Mallon for joining me and sharing his enthusiastic and astute observations. I relied on dozens of sources for this episode, which I will try to list in the show notes. I also want to thank uh, Paul Barrett for great insight on his Sparks blog, One for the Ages, at sparks-oneforthages.com. Monty also has a fantastic podcast called So Important, where he interviews some truly fascinating fascinating folks. I'm already at work on number one in heaven part two. Hope to talk to you soon. Now, dance goddammit.